Hi, everyone. My name is Margie Krakowski, right here. I'm at Architects. I'm the chair of programs along with Tony Smaniato from Studley and Megan Marshall of Jones Lang LaSalle. Uh, we have a lot of exci exciting speakers coming up in our fall programs. Uh, next month, we'll be talking about the year in retrospect and have CBRE's Chicago market leader bringing in a panel of experts to discuss the latest developments in workplace, corporate services, project management, and CBD versus suburban tenants in the market. Our last luncheon of the year in November will focus on the integration of real estate and logistics with panelists from Whirlpool, Caterpillar, and Jones Lang LaSalle. Today's program is being podcast and posted to the Coronet website. If you have your MCR, you receive one continuing education credit for each luncheon you attend. There is a, a sign-up sheet by the registration desk. Now, we always encourage your feedback at the end of the program, and there will be surveys distributed during the Q&A discussion of the program. Today's topic, our annual installment of Tales from the Trenches, will focus on the demands of operating in a global market. Please welcome to the stage our distinguished speakers. Buddy Knipfer, Director of Global Real Estate Strategy and Operations with Motorola Solutions. In 2012, his portfolio had 200 plus properties and eight plus million square feet operating in over 100 countries. He is responsible for partnering with the business to develop a global multi-year business plan and implement in region with outsourced supplier teams. Patrick Miller with DTZ, Vice President of Global Corporate Services. Patrick is based out of Chicago and previously worked in DTZ's Shanghai office. He has managed international real estate transactions in Europe, Middle East, Africa, Asia Pacific, and Latin America for U.S.-based clients. Lee Stringer with HOK, Senior Vice President and Director of Strategic Accounts. She is a practice leader in HOK's New York office, providing leadership in the areas of facility planning, workplace strategy, sustainable consulting for clients across the globe. She has been a fe featured speaker at many industry events and has been interviewed for her work by CNN, USA Today, Good Morning America, and the Wall Street Journal. Greg Parker, Managing Director, North America Cost Consultancy with Mace Group. Greg has over 25 years of experience as a deep subject matter expert in construction cost and procurement management, providing a strategic role in the control and management of major capital expenditure programs for many public and private owners. And last, our moderator, but not least, Martin Clark, Senior Vice President, Cor Corporate Services with Northern Trust. Prior to joining Northern Trust in Chicago, Martin served as real estate director for Europe, Middle East, and Africa for Oracle in London. He has worked extensively across the world, buying, selling, leasing office space, project managing construction, build out, and facilities management. Okay, thank you. Can everybody hear me? Yeah, I'll take that as a yes, that silence. Okay, um, so you can tell by my accent I'm not a native Chicagoan. I feel more like the, uh, the head of the Geico ad. <laughs> um, before we get started, I thought we'd just do a bit of a poll. Um, hands up those people that have uh, undertaken projects directly in, say, EMEA. Okay, so we've got a handful there. What about Asia Pacific region? Any, who's, who's completed projects there? Okay, so we've got a good bit of experience uh, in the room. Um, as everybody knows, over the last, um, uh, the last 15 to 20 years, um, we've all heard from our corporations the follow the sun model and taking on new markets and the growth markets and offshoring. They've become common terms. Um, but that brings with it particular challenges for the real estate industry, and we've got a, a great panel of speakers today that uh, are going to help us to uh, understand some of the pitfalls and hopefully provide us all with some tips and hints about how we can operate in those global markets. Um, we've broken the session down. We've got, a, we've got an end user perspective. We've got a, a broker and an agency perspective. We have a design perspective, and we also have a construction perspective from the, the uh, speakers on the panel today. Um, this um, quote, I'm not absolutely sure where it came from, but certainly when I started working internationally, um, I think 
working internationally challenges all those conventions that we get taught in business school um, or as we get, we get taught in our early career. Um, and really, when we work internationally, you can't take anything for granted. So, you know, in Western Europe and presumably here in the US, we're all taught at management school about how to, it's all about management of scarce resources. Um, when you start to do work in India, for instance, when you can employ a person for a dollar a day, it no longer becomes about managing scarce resources. In those kind of markets, it come, becomes about um, managing logistics. So, those are, so, so that's just one example of where really we just can't take anything for granted that we've learned in our, sort of, in our schooling and in our early life. So hopefully today is going to give us some, uh, uh, some good insights into that. Um, so without further ado, my job is actually not to talk, which I've sort of failed to do in the first three minutes, but uh, is just to moderate. Um, we're going to try and get through our presentations by about 20 past one, and then we'll, uh, we'll if, if you've got any questions, just hold them till, um, till then, and then we'll ask the, the uh, speakers accordingly. But um, I'd like to hand over to uh, Buddy uh, Kneifer from uh, Motorola. Thank you. I think you can hear me. All right, uh, thank you, Martin. Appreciate that. I didn't prepare any slides for this event. I'm using slides that uh, I use with our senior leaders. So um, just a, a little history here. I work for the Motorola Solutions business. And uh, not to be confused with Motorola Mobility, we split the company in half 20 months ago. And that's part of what I'm going to share with you today is uh, global company. We've, uh, we split the company in half 20 months ago. We, uh, we sold another part of our business uh, four months later, and, uh, and we continue to uh, optimize the portfolio, and we have challenges going forward. So I'm going to share a slide with you that, that takes you through that journey a little bit, and you can, ex you can uh, appreciate the global experience that we've had here. So um, before spin, on January 4th of 2011, we were 19 million square feet. And on that day, we split the company in half. And, uh, and uh, 101 of our 363 sites uh, transferred over. Pre that split, we had 80 sites that we downsized that business in. In that 100 sites, we had to put walls, doors, card readers, all the project work associated to that. We had to separate the company from uh, intellectual property, from IT closets, everything, right? So you can imagine January 4th was three years worth of planning and anguish too, to be honest. Um, and then four months later, we sold our networks business. And our networks business uh, was sitting in 140 sites, and we transferred 41 of them, and they left us vacancy in 100 sites. So you can imagine we went into uh, a, a continued opti optimization mode at those 100 sites. And again, the walls, doors, uh, getting rid of leases, all in countries all across the world. And then uh, we, we, uh, we, being the uh, Motorola Solutions business, kind of the Motorola Inc., uh, retained all the junk, as I call it. And so, so we had another million square feet of optimization uh, beyond that. So we're sitting here past January 1st, sitting here 20 months later, going from almost 20 million square feet to 7.8 and literally touching every property in the world. And uh, that was quite a challenge, multi-country, multi-business. And not just multi-business separating the company between Motorola Mobility and Solutions, uh, NSN. We sold our networks business. And so if you think about every deal, in some cases we ended up with cohab sites where Motorola Mobility was there, Motorola Solution, NSN, and then a real landlord. You can imagine the negotiation process we had. Everybody had their own interest, uh, and uh, then once you get uh, multi-country, um, I'll tell you a story sometime about a, uh, a December, whole month of December trip I made, was told to go and negotiate and don't come back until you're done. And I didn't quite, almost missed Christmas. So um, it's a different story. So how did we do this? And I want to say we were smart. I think we were lucky more than smart. We, are, uh, we have a centralized leadership team, but we distribute locally. And I think our partners here at the table will talk a little bit about cultures and, and challenges and uh, uh, from a deal side, from a project side, from a design side, 
that those challenges bring to us. Okay? Probably the key to our centralized leadership really is we own the budget globally from a real estate side. And uh, I, I get the dubious honor of signing every lease globally. And uh, that's a big deal. Um, I know Patrick's going to talk a little bit about that, but that's a, that's a bigger deal than people realize. The question, there's a difference between signing the lease and actually managing the negotiation. I'll, I'll let you talk more about that. But, but that was a huge challenge. It was an absolute huge challenge. Uh, from a regional side, we didn't give the regional teams the ability to uh, work on the transaction. They delivered the project, they delivered the FM side, but they could not deliver the transaction side that was done from a central team. Um, in a previous uh, uh, organizational structure, we allowed all three at a local level, and guess what? We lost control. And so uh, that was one I would say we were smart at, we're not lucky. And uh, we did take that away from the regional side and did it from a, from a centralized side. So what were the guiding principles? Now, how are we structured? The, uh, we are a governance organization. We have two key suppliers um, that uh, we manage. We have, I have 22 headcount for our global organization. Um, Pre-split, we had 35, just to give you an idea of scale. The, uh, our suppliers, uh, CBRE and JCI, I'll give you guys a little notable there. Um, 240 headcount on the ground, doing performing in our 200 plus properties uh, day in and day out. And you, on our behalf, you hire another 800 headcount, um, janitorial, uh, landscaping, all of that. So we got a thousand people we're managing. What's important about this is right hand side is the delivery, where we have people on the ground. Left hand side is the governance where we own transaction portfolio uh, supplier governance. And then the legal side, we actually have legal uh, that supports us. And uh, so we control on the left-hand side, we deliver on the right. And what's even, even more significant is with a two-supplier model, we get scale up and down. If we hadn't, done, uh, if we hadn't been a, a supplier governance model, uh, we would have had a bigger problem with uh, Motorola's more worried about their job than as opposed to uh, uh, really helping the separation, the sale, and, uh, and all the work going forward. Okay? So that's our delivery model. Um, I want, again, I want to say uh, uh, unique situation, 20 months. I would like to say I have more gray hairs, but I think I have less. Um, very, uh, very, a uh, couple career-defining moments in that, uh, but I think this structure helped us immensely um, if you want to talk to me about some other lessons learned that have more humor behind them, I'd be happy to share some of those with you. So with that, I'll turn it over to Patrick Miller, and uh, you can take it from there. Thank you. There you go. There you go. Can everybody hear me okay? All right. Um, my name is Patrick Miller, and I work with DTZ. Um, I've been in Chicago now for five years, but I previously worked uh, for seven years and lived in, in Shanghai, China. Um, I was on my way over here, I was thinking about, you know, and I was calculating all the projects I've done internationally uh, since I've joined in the U.S., and it's over 300 transactions, um, and they've all been international projects covering pretty much every major market that we see with all of our, our, our clients. So I've, I've been doing this for quite a while. Um, but that also makes me cautious because one of the dangers of this is to think you're an expert at this because um, every project has its own nuances and challenges and you can get caught off guard when you make a lot of assumptions on that. And that's going to be one of the key messages I think I'm going to try to deliver today um, based on my experiences. And many of you, I see some people kind of smiling. You know what I'm talking about. Um, you can be your worst enemy if you think you know how it's going to work. Um, so I'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. Um, but as you can see, oh, I've got to change the slide, sorry. <laughs> um, what I'm going to get into briefly here is some of the, the major differences between you know, North American and international real estate practices. And some of these are obvious and you may know, and some of them might be a little bit uh, more subtle. Um, I'm going to go through these and then try to kind of flavor this a little bit with some uh, stories and examples um, in my experience. Um, first thing is, as many of you will know, there's 
a difference in the physical space. Um, there's a difference in the way people talk about the space. You know, if you look at the, the first point there over handover conditions, you'll see, you know, internationally you'll see soft, you know, shell, hard shell, cold shell, warm shell. My, my personal favorite is, you know, what you'll see in India sometimes is called super built up area. And I think if I was a landlord, that would be my choice of words. Um, the, the key to this is you've got to f spend some time to figure out what they're really talking about and what it means. Um, we often suggest that people go and measure the space, get AutoCADs, all of these, these things, because you don't quite know. It's not the same from every market. It's not the same from every landlord. Um, so that's a big, a big issue we run into. Another one being reinstatement can vary widely from country to country. In a lot of the Scandinavian countries, you will see very minimal reinstatement because the landlord owns the fit-out. But if you go to the UK, for example, it's an elaborate um, you know, it's process to negotiate your dilapidations claim. That's one of the, the phrases they use there. Australia, you'll hear, make good. Um, so this, this can vary widely, and you've got to pay attention to it uh, as an occupier. Um, last one is measurements. I won't get into that too much, but you know, you've got square meters, square feet. You know, Pyong, you've got Subo, you've got multiple different measurements. You've got to be careful that you know what you're talking, you know, you, that you bring it down to something you can understand. Another thing we see quite a bit is, um, and I see a lot of clients asking, well, is this a class A building? And in a lot of the markets I deal with, you know, class A means the landlord said it's class A. <laughs> you know, and if I was a landlord, I'd have super built up area and I'd surely have a class A building no matter what. You know, in some markets, there's, there's a system for that, a classification system, but many there aren't. So you really have to just kind of, you know, go back and just you know, sharpen your pencil and really think about each individual building um, when you're getting into it because, you know, there's no, you know, sure thing there. Um, another thing to get into real quickly is, is, you know, laws. You've got common law versus civil code. You know, common law being, you know, U.S., U.K., Australia, India. Um, these... These leases tend to be a lot more detailed. Um, you're going to be able to negotiate lots of different clauses, such as bankruptcy, environmental, insurance, um, into those leases. They're a lot longer. Um, whereas if you look at some, you know, in Europe, you'll see where there's civil code. A lot of this, some of the, the things you'll normally see in a lease is built into you know, the codified law. So you won't read it in the document, but it'll be, it'll be assumed and it'll be known. Um, an example of this would be in, in France, where you have break options, you know, three, six, you know, thir three, six, and nine years. You might not read that in the actual lease document, but it's, it's known and it's assumed. And this is something that can really trip companies up because they're reading this you know, shorter document looking for clauses and options and things that aren't written in there, but they're, you know, legal or their agency would know just because it's written into to the law. So that, that's something that I see quite a bit, and especially with you know, lease administrators, because this is something where you can, it can trip up your notice dates um, to understand when does your lease expire, or you know, when can you break it. So I highlight that as a big difference. Um, another thing we see a lot is this, this idea of you know, brokerage versus agency. And I kind of separate the two as like, a, a broker kind of has a hunter mentality. Of you eat what you kill very aggressive, very deal-oriented, spends a lot of time on the actual contract and negotiating that contract. Um, often a broker would be paid by the landlord, typically I've seen. Um, whereas agency is a bit, is a bit different. You'll see this um, more so in, in Europe, where a lot of the work of, of an agent is more consulting-based, um, and they'll also they'll have a little bit more you know, real estate training. They're typically you know, paid by the, the tenant, but, but also I think the, you know, the important thing is they'll sort of take a more, it's not a laid back approach to it, but you won't see that type of aggression on the, the negotiation part of it because they see a lot of their work being done up until you're negotiating the contract. And that can sometimes, you know, clients that I have are wondering, you know, why, you know, this difference, why is their broker not doing this or their agent not doing this? So that's something to pay attention to. Um, Obviously, you know, who pays the fees, that varies from country to country and can change from year to year. So it's, you've got to really spend some time to understand that. Um, what I'd say is a, is a rule of thumb, you know, most international markets, the tenant pays. 
um, with the exception of, of a few places. So that's a big change from, from the United States. And that's something that you've got to, as, a, as an occupier, you've got to get your head wrapped around because you're gonna, it's going to cost you money to do, to do a deal. Um, moving on here, I don't want to take up too much time, but the, the role of the, the corporate real estate, um, and, and we alluded to this a little bit, it's you know, who's in control? And sometimes this can be who has the authority to sign the lease, as you, as you mentioned, but also who controls the deal. And as you get further away from you know, the home base, you lose a lot of control on that deal process. And that can make projects really, really challenging. Um, one of the ways that, that we help our clients get control is to make sure that the project, you can actually add value to it that's tangible to their local business. And that's, the, that's you know, really been my way of dealing with that. Because if you're just asking somebody, let me control this transaction in you know, Malaysia, when they're, they're looking at it like, no, I'm right here. I can, I can do it. You've got to have something that, that, that makes them want to work with you. Um, and I kind of prefer the method of, of, of more carrot than, than stick. That seems to, to work better. Um, moving on, this is where it gets kind of interesting and, and fun. Um, you've got local business practices. Often, if any of you have done projects internationally, you'll hear somebody say, well, you can't do that here. That's not the way we do it. And you're t torn between, OK, well, but you, know, do you, you don't want to impede on somebody and their, their culture and custom when they, when they say that to you. But you also think there may be a chance. And trying to figure that out, it can be challenging. What, what I always you know, try to say is, don't be afraid to ask an obvious question because the answer you get back. And a good example that I have of that is I was working with a client in Munich that wanted to downsize their space. And in Germany, you'll hear a lot of people parroting this idea of the German natural light law, that you, you have to have a certain amount of natural light per employee, so that makes the utilization you know, um, very generous. What I found is after digging into it, and some of you may have experienced with this, is that it's actually not so much a law, it's more of a guideline. And that <laughs> if, if you have a building that's ceiling height is actually taller than 3.3 meters, it doesn't matter. So we just said, all right, fine. If we want to shrink the space, we'll just look for buildings with tall ceilings. <laughs> and it was as simple as that. And, but it took us a lot of digging and asking questions continually. Well, what happens if you don't do that? Well, not so much as long as the ceiling height. So kind of that continue to not be afraid to ask the obvious is I would advise it, you know, um, because I'm shocked. Even in countries like China where I lived and worked for many years, I still find things that have changed or nuances to, to practices. So I, I, that's another kind of key takeaway I give to you uh, here. Um, the, the last one, uh, you know, local business comes, uh, customs, this can be very... Uh, you know, challenging. Because um, we don't, you know, being American, you don't necessarily know that you're offending somebody until after the fact. Um, but I think the key is to be sensitive to that. And your, your intention is as important as what the actual act is. Um, I, I give you an example that's, that's kind of a funny one is when I was living and working in China, I had at a, a lease that I was negotiating, we found, you know, in this financial analysis, we need a certain level of rental to make the, the deal work. So I say, okay, I've got the contract here. You know, I'm going through redlining it, scratch out the, you know, the, the number for the rent, put in a new number. Fair enough, I send it to my Chinese colleague, Lisa Shen, and she sits right next to me. The email goes through, she reads it. She turns around, you know, grabs the cubicle and says to me, in, in Chinese she said, and what that means is, if you wanna die, go die. <laughs> and, and I was just, like white, just looking at her like, oh my gosh. And her point was, the, 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 in numerology in Chinese language, you know, one, four, uh, uh, nine, four, eight, it, you can, it's like a pun on this word in this phrase, it means if you want to die, go ahead and die. She's like, don't put that in the contract. The landlord will not like that. <laughs> and so I said, all right, we're just going to write in, you know, 15,000. <laughs> and so, and, and that's a, a funny one. And we told the landlord later on, and they were just dying laughing. We we're all sitting around, you know, drinking tea, and we finished this deal. But 
it's, it's being cognizant of that, I think, is the, is the most important thing. Um, and what I do is, back to that, that item of, of don't be afraid to ask the obvious, I ask a lot of seemingly obvious questions to, our, to, to all of my colleagues and to our, our clients all over the world, just, just to make sure that what we're doing and the way we're doing it is jiving with the way they see this transaction uh, to go. So it does mean I ask people a lot of questions, but I get a lot of answers, and that really helps steer uh, the process internationally. It sometimes takes more time, but I find it as, as, as preventative maintenance. Um, and I'm, I'm just about done here. I'll go on to the next slide. And this is a picture of an elephant trap. Um, and I, I use the, the phrase elephant traps because as you, you're, you're troubleshooting, in international projects, you're constantly troubleshooting. You're trying to be ahead of what possibly might come down the pike. Um, and one of the sayings that we have in our group is it's not a matter of, you know, if a project is going to go sideways, it's when. And so what I do, and I urge you all with your you know, colleagues and, and other people, you know, is to share some of these stories and find a group of people who are working internationally to share this information with. Whether it be you know, understanding that a Russian lease has to be registered and that registration process can seriously impact the pricing of a lease is a big thing to know before you're getting into a transaction. Or the fact that in Lagos, Nigeria, you need to pay your rent up front. <laughs> Three years rent, pay it up front, no problem, right? Well, that's a big problem if you're trying to push a deal through you know, a corporation. So these things, you know, I'm not going to go through the list of them. I was making it on an airplane, and I was just thinking, my goodness, this would be completely overkill. Um, and I wouldn't hit them all. I'm still missing some. But it's this constant thinking and dialogue about it, um, I think, can really help, uh, help you going forward. So that's it. Sorry if I was too, too long there. But um, next up, Lee, please. Okay, so um, now to talk about design a little bit. We've been talking about um, trends and issues and a whole bunch of thing, um, things. I'm going to cover three topics. The first is how does national culture impact design, physical design? Um, secondly, a little bit about metrics um, and standards. We're trying our best to try and um, put this global landscape into some, some common metrics. So I'll talk about those for a few minutes and then talk about a, a case study, a pharma, pharmaceutical company, global that's rolling out uh, new workplace standards and give you some snippets of what they're wrestling with. So national culture, there's been a lot um, that we've obviously covered today already. Um, personal space, privacy, these are a lot of the things that really do affect space and our perception of space. Um, you know, the power distance, um, nonverbal communications, all these sorts of things. Um, enclosure. Actually, we were talking about Germany earlier. Um, Germans, when, they, when you say you need a private space or an enclosed space, they need firm walls. They need strict walls around them and very thick furniture as well. Um, and you know, very kind of in the ground versus Japan, where it's you know, rice paper and very light walls that will separate people from each other. Um, in the UK, uh, they can actually just stare ahead and deal with it just fine. If you've ever been in the tube, um, you know what I'm saying, that uh, you don't necessarily need a physical space to separate you in terms of feeling that you have that personal separation. <laughs> and I'm New York, it's, it's very similar. Uh, <laughs> I'm, doing, I'm about to go to South Korea, very excited um, on, this, on this project that we're working on there. And um, we've been getting a lot of, uh, you know, sharing documents back and forth, trying to brush up on my South Korean. And uh, as, I, as I started to deep, a uh, little dive, dive into it a bit, um, I, I looked up this uh, category, somebody was trying to explain to me the language. And it turns out that um, there are different terms for addressing different people in the family. So if I'm talking to my husband's, mother's, sister's child, there's actually a name for that person um, that is distinct from other cousins, second cousins, or whatever that we say in the United States. And I think this hierarchy in the language is certainly embedded in the culture as well. And I was actually looking at their current standards, and there's like chairman and junior chairman and junior junior chairman, and then there's a president and junior president, da da da. It's very hierarchical, all different workplace standards, right? So it's, it's reflected very much in the culture, and this hierarchy um, is a big one that we're wrestling with a lot with a number of our clients. Also, this issue of individualism. So there's, um, in the United States, uh, we're a little more individualistic, if you will. We like our personal space. The square foot per person is a little bit more generous, you know, especially in the Midwest. You guys have lots of room. Um, and we, um, we like our control of our environment as well. 
in other societies. Um, it's a little less individualistic, more collective. Um, groups, teams make decisions together. Um, there's a lot more uh, joint decision-making, a lot larger meeting spaces, and a lot smaller square foot per person, um, you know, in terms of the individual space. A lot more collective ownership. So these things, again, reflected in uh, the kinds of workspaces that we're seeing. And I wanted to throw out there, do a little call out to two of my favorite authors who write about natural culture, national culture and design. Um, Sally Augustin, who actually lives here in Chicago, who is a behavioral psychologist. She writes a lot about physical space and the differences there. If your designers take these down. And um, on the right-hand side, Gerd Hofstede has written quite a bit about this. If you're doing any business anywhere abroad, he's, he's got some you know, somewhat controversial um, work, but I think it's really um, well-founded. And we use it a lot in our practice to talk about what's different about different groups. And, and as we roll things out globally, of course, there's all this national uh, differences between all these companies, but also just the cost of real estate. You know, all these other pressures come into play as well. Um, and I, I did a little World According to Lee, um, which is uh, basically looking at metrics and standards across uh, many of our global clients today. And uh, up at the top, you can see it's uh, Asia Pacific, UK, Latin America, North America, Europe and uh, Middle East, North America. It looks really fuzzy to me, so um, you'll get this after. I can't, if you can't read it, don't worry. Um, but basically went through and looked at, based on space size, we looked at uh, space assignment, whether it was hierarchical, not so hierarchical. Um, we looked at uh, the cost of real estate. We looked at um, work at home and ad hoc work at home and how much those are adopted. Interestingly, I, I was talking to one of one of the guys in our, um, in our London office, and he was saying, you know, Lee, um, this whole 100% work at home that you all do in America is very unique to America. Actually, most places, people want to go into the office, and it's, you know, but they don't, companies don't give you, allow you to work at home. You're allowed to do it ad hoc, of course, all the time. But the actual 100% work at home is uh, pretty unique, which was a surprise to me. So, you know, as we look across um, at global portfolios, we're always trying to say, well, you know, where, where are... Um, these different uh, countries and regions, and how do we design space that really makes sense for them. So I want to dive into this, this case study. Um, and basically, it's a global workplace standards assignment. Um, this uh, pharmaceutical company had rolled out standards in the past, and they didn't go over so well. They're like, here are US standards. Don't you want to use these? No, that's, you know, that's your standards in the US. We do things differently here. You know. Everything's a little different everywhere. And uh, that didn't go over. So we're using a, a different tack um, to roll these out and kind of designing the airplane as we fly it in the sense that every time there's a new project that's coming up globally, um, we're applying some of the same principles to each project, but rolling it out a little differently and, and learning what works as we go. Um, we have found that there are some things that are standardized and can be standard, particularly when it comes to a global rollout you know, for a, a multinational company. Um, and that is that there's uh, high-level strategic objectives that we can all agree on. Now, how they might be implemented might be a little different. Um, the kit of parts will be the same. It usually needs to be a pretty robust kit of parts in terms of huddle rooms and telephone rooms and spaces and all the technology uses to support work. But you can use the same kit of parts. So, for example, but they might be implemented differently. And as an example of that, in Norway, um, you can walk into an office and you could hear a pin drop. It's very quiet in Norway. Um, and so huddle rooms in Norway are for quiet, loud, loud conversations and speaker phones and, you know, talking. <laughs> and um, in, uh, in other places, in Portugal, for example, you walk into a typical office and it's loud and boisterous and a lot's happening and there's quite the buzz. And you actually go into a huddle room to be quiet for just a minute. <laughs> um, so I think that, you know, again, same kit of parts, um, same number of spaces, but they might be allocated differently. And again, part of that's the engagement with folks. Um, so... Um, there's a little bit of a difference in terms of the density that we're able to reach. The square meters per person is going to vary a little bit, but we're trying to look at um, overall targets as we start to get more and more into this. I would say um, one thing we're learning about that's probably the most important is this process of engagement. To not walk into a room in Shanghai and say, okay, here are the U.S. standards and you will meet them, but rather um, how do you work and how could you work more effectively and efficiently and um, here's how you guys actually differ from your compatriots and other, other cultures. And let's talk about that and, um, and then come to some consensus about what you need. In the meantime, we have in our back pocket what those metrics are and exactly what we need to accomplish and what they've done in other places that we want to align with. But we, we don't say that up front. 
Um, we kind of get there over time. And I think it's, but it's, it's, it's respectful and it's the right way to engage. Um, as we're as we're thinking about uh, different countries and engaging, this um, this is Gert Hofstede's cultural dimensions. It's one of the it's a little diagram that we use at the beginning of each vision session. This one is comparing Austria, the UK, and the US, and uh, dimensions of hierarchy. And, you know all how these these cultures uh, might think a little differently, and we always walk in, you know, and say, well, you know, you guys are a little different for the main office from, from other regional offices, and. And we realize this is why generalizations here, but everyone laughs because it's all totally true. And um, but it, it starts; it's a nice baseline for everybody to kind of start from. Um, and so, three examples of uh, some workplace standards that are are some some workplaces in uh, same company, very different offices. So this is Vienna, and uh, in in many places in Europe including Germany and Vienna. The floor plate is much thinner than it is in the Midwest, where we have these massive buildings that are you know, 400 feet deep and, and all that sort of stuff. Much thinner, um, there's the light issue that we're all trying to wrestle with, but also the sense of space. And so in Vienna here, you see some bench seating in these little white areas around the perimeter, but they're much further apart from each other than they are in a lot of applications that we'd see in the UK or even in the US. So distance is important to them. This is uh, the Hamburg office of uh, same, same company. And um, you can see in orange the perimeter enclosed, very thick walls that are dividing um, each one of the uh, offices. But also, we've kind of broken out um, collaborative spaces in the center and on the ends. I mean, this is a very traditional double loaded quarter uh, German space, but we've really broken out some of the edges to allow for more collaborative space. Again, same kind of parts. In Hong Kong, um, it's a lot more dense um, in this case. And I, I don't know about you all, we're doing some work in Hong Kong and, and Shanghai for this, for this client. And they, um, there's a huge escalation issue we're re running up against. So uh, renewing, we're renewing a bunch of leases, and they've gone up 60 60% from the year before. So it's um, pretty, pretty scary how, how um, expensive it is. Um, so we're really, again, trying to keep the space really tight. But I guess the difference between uh, this space and others is that the collaborative, collaborative areas are much larger. So they have much larger meeting rooms for more people to make the decisions around the table and smaller uh, seating elsewhere. So just a taste of kind of what we're rolling out at the global level. And then I'm going to pass it on to Greg Parker with MACE. Hello everybody, my name's Greg Parker with MACE. Um, Martin asked me to go last. Um, There's a reason for that, I'm a cost estimator by background. And he said, Greg, why don't you speak for 10 minutes? But depending how it goes, you know, you need to adjust. I said, that's great, 10 minutes, I'll be somewhere between 5 and 15. You know, typical cost estimating accuracy for folks like me. <laughs> I think I've got one of these uh, pointers here, so let's see what happens. We're we hitting... Oh, that one, there we go. Um, a lot of what I'm going to say really just does continue the great stuff my colleagues have said about uh, how to operate culturally and understanding the markets. And I'm going to really pick on uh, the same uh, three kind of themes, but from a construction delivery, construction management uh, perspective. And that's, uh, as you can see on the board here. The first one is owners are now seeking a trusted global delivery partner. And that's really important. Um, there's uncertainty in locations. Uh, and our job is really to provide that confidence. And I'll talk about that in a moment. And I think the other thing I always like to add to that is countries are continually changing. We read about it in the paper every day. But you know, when you look at the things that are driving economies, driving construction, they're changing all the time. So something you might have read in an Outlook 2010 is redundant now in 2012. So we need to be very wary of that. The second thing I'm going to talk about a little bit is consistency of the brand. This is really important to me, so I know it's important to your companies. Um, it's standardization, standardization wherever possible, even in these countries as we look, work around the world. And I'll talk about the importance of that as well. And then the other thing which everyone's talked about is understanding the marketplace and, and learning the market and don't take it for granted. And I can talk about that firsthand because... Uh, as you can tell from the accent, about 15 years ago, I, I came to America and I went out to Phoenix. And my first uh, engagement, I stood on a stage like this, in stripes, British tie, you can tell the similarities. And uh, stood on stage and told the audience at a lunch, 
who were in Phoenix dressed in uh, the local contractors' uniforms and outfits um, about P3 and how they should do it. And I came to questions, and the guy put his hand up. He had long cowboy boots. There's no word of a lie. There's long cowboy boots. He had a denim shirt, Stetson hat, and he said, young man, we survived 200 years without you. I think you need to learn how to do things here before you start telling us how to do things. So, so I learned that, that lesson pretty quickly. Um, and here we are 15 years later, and I'm still up here with a pinstripe suit trying to do that. But the good news, and it's a rather proud week for me, actually, because I took it all the way because uh, on Tuesday I actually became a US citizen. So, so Martin, we separate now. So, as I say, I, I'm proud to be here, and Tuesday being such an appointed day was a, a very special day in my family. And uh, I just wanted to share that with you. <laughs> so back to, uh, back to the story. Um, first thing about MACE, as I alluded to, is we really, really, really want to be your trusted global delivery partner. It's in our core values. It's what clients want. We need, we, they've got too much to worry about. And as they go to countries, and you'll see something, oh, I don't know how well this comes up, um, Zimbabwe, Philippines, Algeria, India, hard to expect a client investors to know exactly what's going on there. And we want to provide that confidence and be there for, for, for those owners. And that's something that Mace has vested seriously in, in the purity. And as you look at the kind of bubbles on here, what does that mean? That means there may be a project where we're all of that, because that's the right answer. And it may be a project where none of that, and we have to help them find somebody or parts of that. And I'll talk about the Foreign Commonwealth Office, one of our best examples, in just a moment. But the way we go about it at MACE in, in delivering this, and, and consider MACE is nearly 4,000 people in 65 countries, we, you know, we vested heavily in this, is each of our clients who really are serious about a global need, we set up a two-tier hub-and-spoke types arrangement. On a, on a global level, we call it a PMO. We all know that, project management office, program management office, something like that. But really, that's designed to be close to the client and driving that consistency and accountability and communication so that we are looking at straight in the client's eyes and being accountable for delivery wherever it might be in the world. And, and, and in return, we're part of the, we're an extension of that client. We're there at the planning. Because one of the key things is if you're going to go and build somewhere in Algeria in 2013, tell us now. Because we can start looking at the issues, start looking at where we have strengths, more likely where we have weaknesses, and how we can find partners that can give you a better service. On the other side of it, sitting here in Chicago, I know absolutely nothing about Algeria or Zimbabwe and places like that. So it's to have the local resource who have the knowledge and have the flexibility. And, and I'll talk about that on the next slide when I talk about people. And also our ability to problem solve. Our, my peers here talked about the different challenges here. We may have a standard design be shared with us here, but how are you going to solve that to deliver that from a construction, also from long lead items, delivery, and things like that? So the good example I've got up here is the UK government, the Foreign Commonwealth Office. Um, we have similar arrangements with clients like Exxon and Nokia and companies like that who are building continually around the world. We set up the PMO on that. Um, when I take someone like Zimbabwe, there really wasn't the construction skills to build a six-star kind of embassy with all the British dark word type stuff, like this room, really. all the you know, stuff like that. And they asked us to be the contractor and come up with a construction solution. We're currently doing a job in Beverly Hills where there's a great contractor base, better than anything we can provide, and we're acting in the project management. But the great thing is, whether it's our guys who report to, to the MACE people, myself, who are in Los Angeles, or it's the construction delivery in Zimbabwe, we set up that commonality of platform delivery back with the government in the UK. And as a result, we're now delivering hundreds of projects around the world. It's a huge investment of ours, and it's a huge commitment to the client. But when you do that, you can make things work. But really the key, when I talk about that, that, is the consistency of MACE, it's the people, it's the skills. And you'll read up there and, and you'll all nod and say, that's my company as well. I mean, if any of us say we don't try and attract the right talent, well, we wouldn't be in business. And if we didn't believe that, we wouldn't be in business and training. Um, but a few of the things that I think is really interesting about how we approach this on a global basis, and I'll talk about the, the case study in a moment uh, with Latin America. Um, we really go a long way to encourage people to join us, come and work for us, say, and I'll give you the example with a project in Colombia. We had a Colombian gentleman work for MACE in Spain, the consistency of the Spanish speaking for five years, get trained in the MACE way, and then he went back with his family to Colombia, 
He actually, for various reasons, chose to leave Mace and start his own business in Colombia. He's an alumni of us. We have a client now who has actually got a project in Colombia. We're teed up and ready to go on that. So we're very about bringing people in from those countries, training them, letting them go back, and the ebb and flow of that. And people do like to move, and there's a lot of experience. And what we found is in Spain and Portugal, we've done that. And now it's allowed us to set up operations in Sao Paulo, in Lima, and Santiago, and other places in South America, where they've got the MACE training, but they've come from there, and they understand the local, and they can build out with confidence. And that's something that MACE has invested in when they identified that region as a region they wanted to do business. Um, the other thing that we've also done, and you'll see a slide there, it shows a group of uh, young professionals outside a, a, a trailer hut actually at the London Olympics. We were fortunate enough to be the project manager for that. And one of the requirements on that project, which has allowed us to do it worldwide when we secured that commission in 2005, is how are we going to attract people in a relatively low income, well, a very low income for the UK, poor area of northeast, north, east London, west London, east London, I'm sorry, and help them develop. We had a commitment and targets and KPIs about taking people in and training them, developing and become apprentice skills. It was a huge change for me, so we're not that old as a company, but we developed a whole training program that's now become a program global, which we've actually just recently started implementing in our Johannesburg office as a trial in how to help the local community become more involved. Because that's one of the key things, which will come up in another slide, is when you go to these marketplaces, the more you can integrate in the community and be giving back, the more they'll give back to you, the more you break down some of the risk, which we do see of, I can give you an example of a project in Argentina where halfway through they came to us and said, give us 28 million more for this $120 million project, or we're, not, we're taking your permit away. And another project where they threatened to just to walk off the site and go to the next project. You, you, how do you control those risks? Well, one of the best ways is to engage in the community and become part of it and invest in it. And that's one example which we've been able to, to take and take forward. Um, as I talk about some pretty heavy stuff, I've got a little story to tell you about something I just had in Brazil. And it's to do with cows. We have a US client who wanted an awful lot of leather furniture for their new facility. Really, really nice, very expensive leather furniture because that's what they have everywhere in the US, Europe, and they want the same brand identity for this facility in Brazil. So lo and behold, this leather furniture turns up at the port in Brazil, and it doesn't get through. And you've got the taxes to pay for imports and all that, and they said, well, we need evidence that that leather is cow. Where did that cow come from? So you give them the US paperwork, and they say, no, no, no. Where did it really come from? So there's a whole trail of it. I, think it was, I can't remember. I think it was born in Spain, it's shipped over, raised in Oklahoma. The whole track, the whole thing, all the paperwork, we're there, it's fantastic. And they turn around, this is absolutely word truth. They turn around and said, but why isn't it Brazilian? And we spent nine months trying to get that furniture into the country. This, I'm not exaggerating. In the meantime, we had to get temporary furniture. Uh, we had all the stories for costs we had to pay at the port and all the taxes involved. You know, the funny thing is, and we're talking about on design, it's, it, this is totally true, and I think it's again on my next slide, it's really recognizing those sort of issues ahead of the time. If you're going to do a major interior high-quality fit-out, you know, what are the issues that we take for granted here that may be an issue there? Um, I always like that story. Um, so that drives us all to the understanding of the marketplace. Um, a few of the things MACE do, it is all about risk management. You know, we're construction people, so as construction people, we're all about managing risk because we're typically taking it, taking the risk being transferred by the owner. So we really get quite anal about it. We have checklists, we have protocols, we have an ISO 9001, which if people are familiar with as a quality standard. So we have for every project around the world, particularly into emerging countries, a checklist of the things that have to be signed off, presented up through leadership, eventually if it's big enough to the main board to be signed off, with no exceptions, there has to be a solution. Um, and with that is tied in the risks and the issues that we may have as MACE in performing our service delivery. But the real things I think which I best come to, which I think makes a difference, is when I talk about Africa and the social economic benefits. And I alluded to that a few moments ago. Um, MACE entered the South African market, British speaking, opportunities, many years leading into the, into the World Cup they had there. 
But what became evident very, very quickly was you can't have an office in Johannesburg and say you support Africa. You wouldn't say you have an office in New York and say you support the Americas. But you know, you're in danger of falling into that. So Mace very, very quickly identified if we're going to play in South Africa, we need to play in Africa. We have 16 countries where we have offices and locations, 11 south of the Sahara, 5 north of the Sahara, which means as we work for companies like Nokia and Barclay, some of the preferred providers there, the FCO, they have the confidence that we're not trying to support a project in Nigeria or Kenya or Tanzania from Johannesburg. They have the confidence that we've invested in it, we've considered their issues, and, and it makes a huge difference. We have local people there. Um, you know, a number of them are French speaking when we go to the Congo. You know, we don't actually have an office in the Republic of Congo. I'm, I'm looking at a project in Kinshasa right now, but I have people who are French speaking in our Durban office who can support that. It's a commitment, but it's recognizing it. Um, and the other things that I think is really important, which is certainly a factor for MACE, is ultimately, even though myself and my colleagues at the table here, we work for MACE North America, an American company, our parent company is British, and we have to comply everywhere in the globe to the Bribery and Corruption Act of 2010, which is huge for the UK business. And that's, you can't avoid fraud and corruption, but you can certainly do your best to control and minimize it. So whether you're sitting in London or sitting in Durban, sitting in uh, Bogota, Philip Manella or whatever, we're all required to have the same controls, the same checklists. Every single one of us, who are nearly 4,000 people, have the same six-month testing on corruption, which we have to do to be compliant. And as you can imagine, at main board level, I really wouldn't want to be the person who has to go in front of the main board and explain why we've failed on one of those requirements, which jeopardizes our position as a company. So again, one of the things what I'm really saying here is Mace has looked at the marketplace. We've invested into the communities. We've established real going entities with people who live there. We've, we very much look at encouraging people to come and train and go back. And then we have these other controls in place, which gets us out of trouble. I can't tell you how many times. And you know, the two final things I just want to finish with, one I say at the bottom here, when we went to uh, Zimbabwe, um, I think it was Zimbabwe, I may be wrong, certainly in Africa, um, cash was no good to the construction workers. It didn't achieve anything. They wanted paying in food, gasoline, and, and the things that mean something to them on a daily basis. And we adjusted the way we did that. We worked with the community. That, that spoke volumes. Again, in one of the other locations, I think I alluded earlier, we opened a medical facility. 1,000, 1,100, something like that. Workers and their families got inoculations, got vaccines and health checks. It's a really low cost for us, but huge in minimizing your risk of all the things that could go wrong and getting people engaged. And then the last thing, which I haven't got on here, which is very important, you know, as you think, if you're thinking of investing in South Africa, um, there's a big thing called the Black Economic uh, Empowerment, BEE, it's called. Uh, MACE, like an ISO 9001, have that. We're a tier two, I think. Yeah, tier two PPE qualified, which means we have vested into the community there to be part of MACE. We're not people from London coming in and time to do that. And as you look to, and as we have American clients come to us and say, find us a contractor, find us an architect, these are some of the criteria we say, okay, show me your, your, your certification around that. Because if you have that, it means you're engaging the community, you're reducing your risk of other issues coming along. So finally, just to, to conclude my little presentation, there we go, or not. There's meant to be some bullets there. They're really good as well. Uh, but maybe I'll talk about that. The bullets really, in summary, is communication, okay? We have policies and there are no exceptions. We, I think I've got across, we commit to the market. And the other thing which is inherent as a contractor and something we always look for is our, our number one value which I do know off by heart, safety first, second nature. And, and to that, we've just finished doing some projects in Africa with the Foreign Commonwealth, two million hours without one injury. You know, we've got a very, very happy client. We've got a very, very happy workforce. That doesn't come by luck. That comes by the things I described earlier. So I think on that point, Martin, I've had my summer between five and 15 minutes. It's back to you. Thank you, Greg. If I take 20 past one as on time and on budget, then I think Mays have, uh, have delivered this lunchtime, so thank you. Um, so Buddy, uh, Patrick, Lee, Greg, thank you very much. Um, some great insights there. Um, we wanted now to open up uh, questions to the floor.
So any questions you might have about globalization, localization, how to get projects done, now's the time to ask this esteemed panel. Any questions? There we go, lady over there. Sarah Gorski with Aztec. Uh, I got a question for um, Patrick and any of you. Um, when you do have a situation where you have um, a miscommunication and people get really offended, what, how do you resolve that? What, or what, what are the steps that you took? I'm sure you've been in that situation at some point. How do you approach that? And, and is it reparable or irreparable? And when do you make that call? It's a challenge. Um, it happens, and it, it unfortunately, you know, there's so much space for miscommunication that it, it happens more often than you'd like. Um, I think you know what we really try to do is, you know, when when someone is offended, you've got to back up. And what we usually do is pull the person whoever committed that offense out of the situation, just remove it completely, and then we try to bring in one of our principals who understand where, the, you know, the offense, why it was. It, it, Defended them and then come in to try to, you know, correct it on their level. What we do is we hit it head on. Once you know about it, you go right, you go right at it. And I think that that generally helps. If you try to skirt around it, I think it can snowball and make things worse. So that's that's the approach I've always taken. Um, and it, you know, it's it's kind of a vague answer depending on the specific situation. But that that's how we do it. I mean, this is not just for me, because I'm sure you have seen examples of Yeah, that. we've done it when we didn't realize we did it, right? So that's part of the, part of the issue. But the, the other thing is you've got to earn that trust back. It's a lot harder to earn yeah. that trust back, right? And so it's, it's uncompromising integrity. It's, it's, you know, putting your best foot forward. And sometimes earning it back is very difficult. So, and sometimes it'll cost you part of the deal. So... I think uh, for me, just speaking as a, a woman doing a lot of global work, um, I, we do a lot of work in the Middle East, and uh, sometimes you know you are just not going to be an effective as an individual, and the faux pas is you putting yourself out there, and it's it's hard, you know, just being a huge spokesman for women's issues, not want to say oh, I can do this, you know, I'm going to John Wayne, it. Um, it you know it doesn't it doesn't always work, and you just have to recognize that you know okay, and also I, I'd say it's not just you know a women's issue, it may be just I remember uh, I worked in the UK for. For a little while and um, they put me on this marketing team because the client was Scottish and somebody else on the team was Irish and they don't get along and so the American was okay but not the Scot. It was very bizarre. I didn't really understand it but um, it, was, it was a big deal you know that oh well she can neutralize the situation. I'm like what? You know we, we don't even know each other. There's no personality here. So there's a lot of cultural stuff that just comes with who you are and where you come from. I think that's sometimes um, you know something to be aware of. Hi, I'm Beth Forsnager with Cushman and Wakefield. This question's for Patrick. Um, you had mentioned that there are some tactics to getting control of what's happening in the field from a central office in terms of the deals and other items that may come up where control might be loosened up. Can you give some examples of what value the home office can add? Yeah, that's a, this is a challenge. I'm opening this one up especially uh, <laughs> right here because, but the, you know, and I said more carrot and less stick, you know, it, when that approach is possible, that's the best approach. And what I mean by that is like, for example, if you're taking, one is getting ahead of the curve, so you're seeing the lease expirations as they're coming out, you know, two, three, four, five years in advance, and you're going to them with ideas, that is one of the, the best ways. If you can save people money, they love it. So they'll, they'll give you control of a deal often if you can show them you're saving them money. That's not always possible. Sometimes you have to show them we're going to minimize your your um, your liability there in case of a rising market, et cetera. Um, so th that's the way we try to do it, and we try to help our clients is getting out in front of them and showing that there's value there. We do not just try to insert ourselves for the sake of inserting ourselves. Sometimes what we do is behind the scenes provide our client information, and they can go and work work out a solution with their local business. And, and the issue a lot of times comes is, is where, you'll, I see this a lot in, in China and India, because you'll have, you know, very growing markets, you'll have very, you know, good, strong, you know, leadership, and they're kind of the rising, you know, stars in, of, of a company, and it's hard to, it can be hard to, to rein that in. 
So it's finding that sort of partnership where there's value is, is really, really key. Um, it's not easy though, I'm not, you know. Yeah, I, I look at it and one of our, uh, one of the things that it's, it's, it's walking a very thin line, right? You, you saw me saying centralized, you know, central uh, uh, architecture, delivery in the field. The central, central architecture is you've got to go to the field, you've got to go to that market and you've got, it's the trust, we talked about this in trust, and you've got to get your local people to trust you and you say, okay, here's the business driver, here's our direction. You might get there in a different way because they're going to help you. You've got to pull them in, they've got to trust you. We use government relations people uh, all in-house. We use our local teams wherever we can. And it's a, it's a tough one because if you go over the top of them, they'll never trust you, right? If you make them your partner and they trust you, it's a lot easier to get the deal done, right? So for, our, for us, the, the delicate part is get that partner, get that trust, and still deliver the business requirement. And it's, uh, it's never the same. No. It, never the same. There's no, like, magic bullet. Nope. It really, you have to think about each, I think about each project individually. Who are the people? What yep. are their motivations? Um, who's, who has the, and I mentioned this earlier, who has the authority to sign, but who really has control over the deal? And often they're very different people. Um, you might have some, you know, a shadow figure in the back who's a, you know, finance leader who's, you know, just, they're growing their business like gangbusters and he's calling the shots or she's calling the shots from behind the scenes. But that's a leverage point. Yeah. I mean, what I, what I try to do, honestly, is I let them know I'm signing. I'm the only one that can sign it. But that local team can leverage that. Yeah. Okay. We got to, we got to, you know, yeah. we've got to pacify our, our uh, you know, our parent company here. And they can use that. It's a leverage point, right? And uh, you got to make sure they can. Yeah. Right? I, I spend a lot of time figuring out who, who those people are and what their motivations are. When you have that, and I work with our clients to do that, when you have that, you can start presenting them with solutions that they can absorb and, and, yeah. and want, want to see as opposed to telling them what to do. That doesn't That's go the first mistake well. you make. <laughs> it doesn't yeah. go Never well. tell them what to do. <laughs> exactly. It doesn't matter what culture. Even if you know what it is, it's like you just, you know, you kind of set it up so it's like, yeah. It comes across, oh, they came up with this idea, yeah. like, great. And you, you kind of mentioned that as yep. well with the standards in your back pocket. Um, Good question. Okay, anybody else? Any other questions? No? Well, I'd probably, we've got a couple of minutes to go. I had a, a particular question, actually, and I'm going to ask this around construction because it's something that end users um, particularly uh, in these, these times are particularly sensitive around. Um, in some countries, actually, the use of child labor and construction is still prevalent. Um, and also environmental issues in some countries really just don't mean anything. But in a lot of Western societies, these, there's a lot of practices that we just take for granted, which are really just don't. So there's a question for Greg, really. I mean, how do you protect uh, sort of a, a, you know, an end user or a client from some of these issues, which actually are just absolutely commonplace in some of these uh, international markets? Yeah, um, thank you, Martin. It's almost two slightly separate questions there, one around child labor and one around environmental issues. Um, the reality is there is child labor. Um, the, re the reality is, if you take some of the things I described, we're, we absolutely go into them as a partner to our client. We are very, very strict in our pre-qualification as subcontractors. We really look at where we... And, and, and it's really not even that. It's looking at them... Um, the manufacturing of products that are going to go into your building and how are those manufactured. Um, if you've got the right size project, and I have to separate, you've got the time to really invest in screening your subcontractors and, 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 and extending that to their environmental issues as well. So, you know, it's, and it's built into the MACE way, it's built into the client way of looking at that. I think where you, where you get the challenges, and not necessarily, on those, I mean, the, your opportunity to do that is there. Um, where it probably gets more challenges is those fast-track small projects. And I say it's not the first tier. You can manage the first tier. The first tier means those you're directly communicating with, directly employing on the sites. It's those second and third tiers you have to, you have to watch for. And that really comes down to the process of, of understanding how those companies do business. Um, I'm not going to suggest it's easy, um, but that's the mitigation strategy we take around that. The environmental, and again, by the way, you can write contracts which say no child labor. Right? I, I've had that with, you can write contracts that go to 100 pages of design specifications and they'll still turn around to you in some countries and say, oh, we didn't know you really meant that. You know, 
And, and you know, in some countries, we've got it in Brazil. I, I'm doing a lot of work in Latin America right now. We've got it in uh, two countries I'm doing a lot of work right now, Colombia and Brazil. They're slightly different ways of getting it. But the one thing we have in each case is the architect, who is more or less the architect of record here in the United States, a separate expediter coordination translating that design, which can be very detailed, into language that the person at the, at the work face understands is really important. And the reason why I say Columbia, they have a slight difference of where they go about doing business because the architect can't be the inspector. And that's both from code standards, design review, and through the execution like a clerk of works type person. So you have a separate body who does that. And those things are all kind of checks and balances you can put in place to, to, to improve that. Um, and the other, so when I come back to environmental, just to finish that, you know, we're working very hard from a constructability as we can manage that process of how you're going to go about building it. From a design, again, it's really getting into that local, local uh, community and understanding. And I know, and I'm probably, I haven't done much work in China, but I know that environmental issue has been a big problem in some of the big cities outside Shanghai and Beijing in, in China, uh, managing that process. I, I haven't got a great answer except you've got to really get in front of it rather than wait for it to happen to, to manage that process, or that risk, rather. Thank you, Greg. Um, any final questions before we uh, bring the session to a close? It's just gone 1.30, so I think we're just about out of time. Any final question? Okay. So, that gentleman over there. Just... Uh, <clears throat> George McCready from Unispace, uh, global design firm. For Greg Parker, just intrigued with um, the MACE Group, as large an organization as you are, and recently coming to the American market, I, quite frankly, I find it intriguing and encouraging that they're seeing, um, <coughs> excuse me, America as an, an emerging market. Could you market, say something about that? <laughs> uh, I suppose it's one of our private but not so private jokes that America's our emerging market. It seems kind of weird. Um, I, I would say there aren't many Brits who've come across, I came across 15 years, but uh, the reality for Mace is we've been very successful in the United Kingdom. We've built a very established business. The ownership a few years ago said we're going to become more global. Our clients are wanting that. It was a natural progression to come to America. The nice thing, when we're not a publicly traded company and we're purity construction, they can make some pretty big investment and quick decisions. So Brian, my colleague over there, came on board first last year with a challenge of open five offices, find the best you can in each location. And I'll say on behalf of her, we bought the best person we could find in Chicago, in Ann, to run this region. Um, we did the same in Atlanta. Um, I was fortunate to come on board from Ernst & Young this year. But the reality is, as I said about Africa, Mace's approach is if we're going to go into a country, do it right. You know, I'm not going to come and try and sell to anybody in this room and say, oh, I've landed someone in Atlanta and I can serve you in, I don't know, Chicago. You have to be there. It's no different in America. Understand the culture, but this basic principles of being successful is the same. It, take, it takes some guts to do it, but that's what Mace is about. It's, that's the beauty of why myself and my colleagues joined from other really great companies to take on this challenge. Appreciate you giving me the question to answer. Thank you. We'll uh, close proceedings. So again, I want to thank you, everybody, uh, for listening and uh, thank the uh, speakers in the normal way. Thank you. Thank you again for coming. Thank you to our speakers. And please remember to fill out your surveys.